We want to pray now that you would help us as we look at what your word says. Help us to see the impact that it ought to have on our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There have been those throughout history who've made an impact, who've made a, a mark that their names are still remembered today because of what they did during their lives. People like Mozart, Henry Ford, Isaac Newton, Christopher Columbus, all still remembered because of the impact that they have made. Uh, with each of those people, their lives and their work had an impact, not just on their world, but still on the world that we live in today. Well, today we're looking at a passage from Acts, Acts chapter 9, and we're looking at a character who clearly fits into that category, someone who has made an impact on the world that we live in today, Saul, or the man whose name would be changed later to Paul. A few years back, there was a guy by the name of Gary Hart who wrote a book on the 100 most influential people in human history. His criteria for the list was that they had to have made not just an impact in their lives, but an impact that lasted in the world in which we live. He put Paul, or Saul, as number six on that list, the sixth most influential person in human history, the sixth most influential person who has ever lived. Well, Paul has already popped up so far in the book of Acts. We saw him at the end of chapter 7 when he was holding the clothes of those who were stoning Stephen. He popped up at the beginning of chapter 8 as well, uh, where he was arresting those who were following Jesus. But we pick him up in the story at the beginning of chapter 9. If you had to pick two words that describe Saul before he became a Christian, I think sincere and committed are the two words that spring to my mind. Here is a man who is passionately committed to a cause, zealous, devoted to what he thought was serving God. Saul persecuted Christians because not only did he think that they were wrong, he thought that they were blaspheming, that they were enemies of God. And he sincerely persecuted them. Destroying the church was his goal. That was what he wanted to do. So pick it up with me at the beginning of chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogue in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. He's got permission, approval, he's gone through all of the right channels to be able to go down to Damascus and arrest the Christians that he finds there and bring them back to prison in Jerusalem. Now, Damascus wasn't just down the road from Jerusalem. It was a trip of about 250 kilometers. I mean, Paul is really committed to this task. Sadly, he's totally wrong and misguided in what he's doing, but you can't question his commitment. Now, as Saul embarks on his trip to Damascus, and we read, and I think this passage kind of shows that Jesus really does have a sense of humor. Saul has traveled almost 250 kilometers. He's just arrived on the outskirts of Damascus with his paperwork ready to arrest any Christians that he finds there. And on the edge of Damascus, he's knocked off his horse by a flash of light. 
I mean, Jesus could have done that anywhere in the 250-kilometer journey. He could have done it before he'd even left Jerusalem. But Saul hears this voice as he is knocked off his horse. And the voice says this to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, I think Saul is genuinely stumped by this voice. He has no idea who this could have been talking to him. And that's why he responds the way that he does there in verse 5. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. Now, by Lord, he doesn't mean Lord as in God. He just means, who are you, sir? Saul didn't know who this was that had knocked him to the ground, but he was certainly going to be respectful to whoever it was. And the voice says this. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, these words must have knocked Saul for six. These words must have turned his whole world upside down. By persecuting Christians, Saul is persecuting Jesus himself. That's the closeness of the connection that Jesus has with his people. Jesus tells Saul to get up and to go into Damascus and he will be told what to do. And Saul is led by the hand, like a child, into Damascus, still blind from the light that he saw. These Christians claimed that Jesus was the Messiah and Saul now realises just how true that is that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Saviour that God had promised to send into the world. When I was at school, there was nothing worse than being sent to the principal's office. But the worst part about being sent to the principal's office was not having to face the principal. I always found that the worst part was sitting in the waiting room waiting for the principal to call you in. It might have only been two or three minutes, but it felt like two or three hours that you were waiting there. And I imagine the three days that Paul waited in Damascus would have probably been the three longest days of his life. Now, Paul is there, or Saul is there in Damascus, but in another part of Damascus, uh, there's a voice that speaks again. Jesus speaks to a man by the name of Ananias. And he told him to go to Saul and to lay hands on him so that he could recover his sight. But I, but I love the way this conversation unfolds. Have a look, chapter 9, verse 10 of Acts in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come to him, place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias replied, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. Ananias is saying, I've heard some reports about this guy, Jesus. Maybe you've heard the reports as well. Are you sure you want me to do this? Wouldn't we all be better off if he just stayed blind? To Ananias, this sounded like, a suicide mission, handing himself over to the man who's come with permission to arrest him. 
But did you see the word play in the conversation here? Ananias says he has caused suffering for those who call on your name. And Jesus replies by saying, Saul will carry my name. He will suffer for my name. Ananias arrives at the house and and look at what Paul says, verse 17. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias realizes that he's now talking to a brother, a Christian brother, someone who has come to trust in Jesus. When a person becomes a Christian today, uh, normally it's kind of turning from a position of ignorance to a position of understanding who God is. Our problem is that we have kind of just ignored and rejected God, wanted nothing to do with God, and then we come to that point of understanding what God has done for us and, and, and how we ought to respond to God. But for Saul becoming a Christian, it was a slightly different situation. He was a man who already believed in the God who created the heavens and the earth. Here's the man who believed in the promises that God had made to Abraham. Here's the man who knew that God had promised to send a saviour into the world. Here is the man who knows that God has revealed himself through his word. I think there's a sense in which once Paul or Saul understood who Jesus was absolutely everything else fell into place. He already had all of that information in his head. He knew what the scriptures said. He knew them backwards. Oh, sure, there was a lot that he had misunderstood, a lot that he hadn't seen clearly. That's why he was persecuting Christians. But now he realizes who Jesus is. And the whole thing makes sense. The penny has dropped for him. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus brings salvation into the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that God had promised in the pages of the Old Testament. And within a matter of days of becoming a Christian, Saul is in the synagogue preaching the gospel, sharing with people what it is that Jesus has done and the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. Have a look at what it says in verse 22. Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. He's opening the Scriptures and proving to them that Jesus is the Christ. There was a movie out a few years ago called The Insider. starred Russell Crowe and Al Pacino. They were the main characters. Uh, Russell Crowe was a, a, a... a tobacco company employee who knew exactly what it was that the tobacco companies were doing to make their products addictive. And he's a dangerous man to the tobacco industry. They have to do everything within their power to make sure that this man is silenced, to make sure that his story doesn't get out. And that must have been the way that the Jewish leaders were feeling about Saul. He's the insider. He's the guy who knows all about Judaism. And now he is proving that Jesus is the Christ. He has become 
a dangerous man. The Jewish leaders knew that they had a big problem and they knew that they had to get rid of Saul as fast as they could. Luke tells us that they make a plot to kill him there in Damascus and they keep a watch on the city gate. They do not want this man leaving Damascus alive. It's amazing when you read through this passage how much irony there is in here. Let me point out a, a, few of the, a few of the ironies that we have in this passage. First, we see that Saul has arrived in Damascus. He's gone there with a show of strength, ready to arrest the Christians. But instead of arresting the Christians, he is led into Damascus by the hand like a child because he's now blind. The man who'd gone to Damascus to do great things for God has now been humbled by God. The man who thinks that he is, uh, that, that he, the, the man who is now going to be preaching the name of Jesus. Second, we see that the great persecutor of Christianity has now become the persuader. The man who'd gone to Damascus as an enemy of Christians is now proclaiming, not just proclaiming, but proving that Jesus is the Christ. Third, we see that the persecutor has now become the persecuted. The man who wanted to make the followers of Jesus suffer is now suffering for being a follower of Jesus. But the greatest irony is that the, is that the, people, the people in this story believe in Jesus and they can't come to grips with the change that's happened in Saul. I mean, look at what Ananias says. Jesus tells him to go to see Saul and Ananias questions the wisdom of that kind of a decision. Are you sure that's a good idea, Jesus? And finally, when Jesus arrives back in Jerusalem, none of the disciples want anything to do with him. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. But let me tell you what I think are the two big lessons for us today from this passage. First lesson is this. Never underestimate God's grace. Never underestimate God's grace. That's got to be one of the most impressive things about Saul's conversion. Here is the man who is the persecutor of Christians. Here is the man who was the enemy of Jesus. What does he deserve? Well, he deserves God's punishment. But instead, God demonstrates this incredible grace. God saves him, enables him to see the truth about who Jesus is, forgives him and gives him eternal life. God saves this man. It is incredible that God would be so gracious towards him. Now, if you're listening to this as someone who is a Christian, uh, my guess is your conversion probably wasn't quite as dramatic as Saul's, but God has shown you exactly the same grace. What you deserved from God was God's punishment, but what God has given you is his grace in Jesus. Before you, came, before you became a Christian, you were deserving of nothing other than God's judgment. 
but God has been gracious. If you think that God owed you something before you became a Christian, then you need to start reading your Bible a little bit more closely. God owed you nothing. God was willing to forgive you. He was willing to show you the truth about Jesus. He was willing to give you eternal life because he is remarkably gracious. And we should never take that for granted. We should never forget that what stands at the heart of our friendship with God is God's grace to us in Jesus. But the other thing that stands out in this passage is the power that the gospel has to change lives. See, look at what happened with Saul. He'd gone to Damascus to arrest Christians and he leaves Damascus preaching this message about Jesus. He'd gone to Damascus to silence those who preached the name of Jesus and he ends up standing in the synagogue proving that Jesus is the Christ. He'd gone to Damascus to persecute Christians and he ends up being persecuted himself as a Christian. The gospel changes everything. It changes the way that you see your life. It changes the way that you see others. It changes the way that you live. It changes your goals. It changes your purpose. This is one of the things that comes up all the way through this book of Acts. This message about Jesus, this gospel message, changes everything. It changes the lives of crippled people. It changes the lives of sorcerers. It changes the lives of Ethiopian eunuchs. It changes them dramatically and it changes them forever. If you are someone who does not have that trust yet in Jesus, then the message is make sure that the gospel changes your life. Make sure that you come to that point of trusting in Jesus and accepting the forgiveness and the life that come through him. And remember, the gospel doesn't just change your life once, and it doesn't just change it a bit. It changes your life completely, and it changes your life forever. You need to make sure that the gospel is still shaping your life. If you are someone who has come to that point of trusting in Jesus, then the gospel needs to continue to shape your life, changing the way that you view your life because Jesus is now your Lord, changing the way that you see others because you have experienced God's grace just as Saul did. The gospel changes everything. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we thank you for the extraordinary grace that you have shown to Saul and the extraordinary grace that you have shown to us through your son Jesus. We thank you for the forgiveness and the life that we have in him. We thank you that we now live changed lives and we pray that you would help us to see how those lives need to continue to change that we might be shaped and transformed by the gospel message that has brought us into a relationship with you. Help us more and more every day to be the people that you have called us to be through your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.